Well, look, for the first question, Layton had was, do, do you cut leaves back in trays to uh, increase light penetration? And, and kind of what you have to do is if you're trying to run efficient clone densities where you're actually making the best use of space, because you're lightning, so you have to have some kind of footprint numerically that makes it actually valuable space. The only way you can do that is to, is to standardize the size of each one of the signs. So each one of these cuts have to have a very consistent shape. And so what you do is you create the shape based off of the density pattern. And if you don't trim them up in a tight density, what you're going to have is occlusion of light on some of the plants completely, and then they're going to rot and create a fungal problem in the tray. So cleaning them like that benefits. And I think that there's a stimulatory effect from chopping, because we see you know, uh, fast rates. But all things considered, as long as the source material is clean and healthy, and you have an adequate level of nutrients present within the plant when you cut it, and you create a hospital environment for it while it's sitting, and you're able to get calcium to the roots as soon as you start to see any kind of vascular change, then you have success. In, in, in what that is, we would typically use uh, a citric acid chelate calcium. And so we would pick it up from a country, a company called Cutting Edge. And so it was a citric acid chelate calcium, and it let us just put trace amounts in water that we knew we were adding to buffer. And it would allow us then to have that present when it was needed. So I had a, a, a propagation professor from Davis come and spend some time with me. And he was just kind of helping me understand how they go about doing process on some of these larger operations. And that calcium trick was a nice one. Well, a little bit. I will, my name is Suzanne Wainwright. I'll just introduce myself. Um, my, I have not, we don't love her here. All right, Josh refers to being the controversial speaker. Is that what it was, Josh? That's what I said. Yeah, that's what you said. Um, and, and, uh, <laughs> Even though I am not a propagation specialist, I, in addition to entomology, I also have a degree in environmental horticulture and I've taken plant propagation and everything. And I asked that specific question, um, and I won't refer to you because you actually are doing the propagation. I just deal with bugs, so I normally say this doesn't have six or eight legs. I don't deal with it. But when I was in Canada, I talked to a researcher because they were doing this, and they actually did a study where they trimmed leaves and they didn't trim the leaves. Because when I was in school, they standard teach you to do that, or they did 30 years ago. But they said on the cannabis that it actually slowed the rooting process. Um, and my other concern with the cutting is the sanitation, lack of, of cleaning your pruners. And every time you make a wound, you make an opening. And since we also have some viruses and microplasms and, and different things out there we don't know about, and we don't know how they're vectored yet. Um, and we don't always know which are the option, best options for sanitizing tools, just makes another pathway for things to get in. I actually, at one of my uh, facilities, we actually now uh, have one pair of pruners for each mother, and then it's tied to the plant. Uh, so we definitely don't move between, even then we have a sanitation liquid to dip them in, but each one stays with it because I have so many amazing pictures of dirty pruners laying around cannabis facilities that are never clean. And again, we don't understand the complete virus complex of what is out there and all the different pathogens. We don't know the vectoring methods yet, so you better be safer than sorry biosecurity. And don't let you be the person, I come to your facility and take pictures and put you up there. Because that's what you're going to see tomorrow. 
But yeah, the basic takeoff from this is what, again, research some time when you take it to the real world, and these guys have more experience doing it. But I asked that specific question, and they said when they did a head-to-head, -head, or the canvas was better not to trim them. If, if you have the space, it would be because you're leaving more material to source from, and I agree with the cutting creates opportunity for intrusion, but uh, the, the problem with doing propagation is it's expensive because you're having to run heating and lighting, and rack space costs money, and so the more you spread your tray grids out, you become 50% less efficient right off the bat, so if I go from 100 tray to 50, I'm now half as efficient. We're not talking a little efficient. You used to make a buck, now you make 50 cents. So you have to kind of put that into your equation. That's the problem with cannabis for a lot of it is how much space. Not even the bigger operations with, with more canopy. But historically, you didn't have so much canopy to work with. And then even now, they're going into tissue culture holes so they can get away from having to have so much canopy. And it's just really a foundation. Can you afford to run the electricity? I think that's one of the considerations with real, with real propagation is that the cost of the production of it per square foot dictates some of your techniques. And I think it depends on what state you're in because of, you know, Maine is very challenging because the number of plants you can grow where you go to Florida and there's all the space in the world. And so we can, you know, space them out and have <coughs> what I would call more traditional horticultural propagation in prop trays under mist systems with um, under bottom heating and things like that, and we can space the plant. So it depends on the state and what the rules are on how they <laughs> and cost of energy. When, hello, Wendy, why don't you uh, say who you are? Why do you do this? Let's do that. <laughs> Hi, my name is Wendy Kornberg. Um, I run a small farm in Northern California in Humboldt County. And, um, you know, my basic thing on this would be do it yourself and try it out and see what happens. I'm a huge proponent in collecting more data, and there are so many of us, if we can get everybody to start doing control groups and start checking it out, what works for me might not work for you. I found aloe to be phenomenal for cloning, and I've done side by side. I did it with the purple gel, or the, that, was that Clomax? Right, so that stuff. And uh, I ran a, a, a whole, you know, easy, I use easy cloners, I don't like rock wool, I don't like Oasis cubes, I think they're very, very, environmentally damaging no matter which process is used. I also ended up with totes of that crap and things that didn't take. I'm not a very good cloner when it comes down to this. Aeroclones, I do phenomenal. I do great with them. So we did a chemical, traditional clonex the whole way through, and I did a plain water with just aloe for my um, rooting gel, and it actually rooted faster and it rooted better. So I'm, my, what's gonna happen as soon as I get home when I have some time, is I'm actually going to do a KNF clone versus our plain water. I'd like to do a third run with also chemical just so I can have, again, these control groups. Um, and I think it's really important. So like, you know, Kevin's saying it's about one thing, Susanna's saying there's something else going on. Try it yourself and see. I mean, I traditionally cut mine, but I might try it out. So. Not with, with the plain water. Um, again, healthy moms. If you're starting with a mom that's got issues, you're gonna have issues all the way through. There's just, you're not gonna be able to get away from that. Um, you know, Kevin's talking about calcium, that's something new for me, but my immediate thought goes to free natural farming, my immediate thought goes to water-soluble calcium phosphate or water-soluble calcium. I would not necessarily have added that to my cloning solution, but I'm glad I didn't start that. I'll do that when I get home and add that to my, my recipe. 
I use um, fulvic acid as a, as a flow nutrient, both in the, in the water colors and I spray them. You know, once a day I'll give a little mist of fulvic acid. And um, when, they're, when they're rooted, um, and I, I want Kevin to talk about this because this is something Kevin and I talked about before. So I also use water colors and then I put them into soil and I actually grow them up inside the cloners using fulvic acid and I'll get, you know, a 12 inch top on them. And then I'll cut the roots a little bit, I'll prune them, and then plant it in my soil. Um, Kevin's talked about, you know, there, there's, a, there's a shock point. Yeah, I mean, you want to elaborate on it? The, 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 the spirit coating the root is determined by the environment that it's started. So whenever you make a transition, it's going to be a soil. It's going to have to kind of adapt to that environment. And so, I link water clones to the expediency of the job. The problem is that if you're trying to move clones in any quantity, people don't show up on time and think of any business. So if you're selling a product, Tuesday becomes Wednesday, becomes Thursday, becomes Monday. And the problem is that you have to hold these things in this incredibly aggressive environment. And you can't, if you want to hold them for time, you have to up-pop them. And so once you start to up-pop clones, now you're talking a density of you know, 36 per, per uh, 11 by 22. So you went from potential 100 density down to the lower density. And all of that is cost in space. So, and you're having to now change the tenure practices and you're having to make sure that you keep track of these plants on a cyclical basis. So it makes it hard to use water flowers to feed a commercial operation unless you're gonna go to an up-hot operation. Where you have clients that want to pick it up from you and say one gallon for them. And then you be able to go to threes and go to that, that point and then deliver them plants at whatever size. But for water clones, for the person on use, they're phenomenal because unless you blow roots right now, and if your plant is in an extreme case of like juvenility, where you have high sugar levels in the, the material you're growing, the speed of transition is quick. It, it's never slow. It's when it's well lignified. You can't snap that plant cleanly off with no material stuck to it. If it doesn't just break clean, then it's going to be a much slower period. So as long as you have determined your carbohydrate levels correctly, and you're saying snap. The transition speed of that is quick, no matter what variety. I mean, this is outlier varieties, and then when you can't expect to do one thing to build out the walker crop as an example, she's just really, really exceptionally hard to propagate. I think that's why you don't see that. But if you just kind of make sure that that material is always in that level, then you're not going to have to have the fade. And if you're running too much light over the top of them, you're going to get a fade because of an overgrowth size. And you're going to end up having this huge increase in habits. So when you You'll be increasing callus and you'll be pulling the sugar, but you won't get initiation. And so you're, you're, you're throwing too much energy at the plant to do it. All you need is survival energy. The plant's not going to generate any photosynthesis because it doesn't have an uptake mechanism. So because we cut that short, we're just working off the sink that's present. And the idea is not to burn the sugars up faster than my differentiated tissue converts. Once you get that rhythm, you'll figure it out. And then you're going to find that it's going to be different with different cultivars. And you're just going to write it down in your journal so you can actually put together your propagation schedule a little more accurate. Because they're not going to all strike at the same time, and they're all going to have different needs. And so when you're doing your own farm work, you're able to kind of select that process. So Josh and Kelly, do you guys want to introduce yourselves and talk about do you guys doing cloning? Or do you want to see or something? Yeah, we do clones. Um, we do primarily seeds, but if we're going to pull them in the clones, um, often actually our cloning ends up varying the cycle. Um, we 
we may even take some uh, cuttings today that we picked on the plant because we feel like, yeah, it's shown its full potential and this is something that we really want to keep on our property. So anytime that we're cloning, we're really going to be cloning. Number one, for biological intelligence, meaning that that plant did really well in our environment and maybe it was a female that we're, you know, purposely looking for. So it's a little bit more of a challenging cloning um, procedure when you take the cuttings, you know, when the plant is that mature. So what has always worked for us is, um, you know, clones, clones are being taken from a mother plant and they already had like incredible amounts of nutrients coming through them and then you're really isolating them from the mother source. So when you're isolating a plant from the mother source like that, you really want to think about what it was getting before you know, in its nutrient value from the mother um, to, you know, what it needs when it starts to be cut. And I think the importance is minerals, you know. I know that Kevin, you touched on that. Um, but what we utilize a lot is trace minerals. There's a lot of liquid trace minerals out there. Um, and then it really gives the opportunity for, before the plant shoots out a root, then it already knows that it has all of the optimal minerals for it to grow and for it to root out. So, you know, we love aloe, we love metal tea, and uh, we use the minerals. Another thing we like is um, to either use soil blockers or some kind of a peat puck can be good, but we don't want to use any kind of uh, cloning gels or anything because it has, a lot of times has fungicides in it. And we want our roots to come out in a biological way that's, they're super furry and fuzzy. So we'll often put um, a, a layer of soil on the bottom of the tray and then put some kind of puck or some kind of a medium that we choose on top of the soil. And then the, the soil that we use on the bottom can have a little bit of mycorrhizal fungi in there or some kind of a, a super light nutrient or um, uh, worm casting or something. So when the root comes out of the, the puck or the clone or something, uh, out of the, the root medium, it can go into the, to the soil and then start you know pulsing nutrients out of there. And that just starts off the biological um, response of the roots faster. And then when you get your timing right and you go to transplant, then those roots are kind of in the soil already. So it makes the transition really pretty easy. And we're um, not doing, you know, I think commercially it's what works on our farm. And we're also really careful about getting um, clones from uh, production clone places because of the, the factor of extracts and the potential of um, failing tests. So it's extremely important that you know where your clones come from and um, whether they've been tissue cultured and cleaned up or, or whatever. So we, and we try to do all of our own cloning from our own seeds and then propagate the strains that work best on our land. So that's just what we do. So Steve, do you want to introduce yourself again, I guess, and um, talk about aquaponics and cloning? Sure. So um, I was actually going to mention Todd. I'm Steve. Most of you saw my presentation a little earlier, I do aquaponics. Um, I was actually going to mention, so when I was younger, I used to do cloning. My grandmother taught us to take the new cuttings off of willows. We steep that in sunflower oil, coconut oil. We could extract it, make our own home organic you know, cloning gel. Um, the one I personally like to use for cloning in aquaponics system is called Olivia's cloning gel. It's certified organic, Omri certified, so you can actually use it you know, with whatever, it doesn't matter. Um, I found that there isn't really any issues with PGRs, at least cloning PGRs with aquaponics, but with fish and all, it seems to not affect fish health, at least in any city that I'm aware of. Um, but it um, doesn't mean you should go use all of them in ways, but it, you know, there's no evidence, at least in terms 
And if you start to look at tissue culture people, which are probably the smartest propagators I meet in terms of successful propagation of other type of plants, they're getting shit kicked out of them doing cannabis propagation. And so it lets you see that there's a complexity to making it work. And what you want to be able to do is put as much hands on the product as possible so that you see as many different cultivars as possible propagating through your fingers. So now you actually have an idea about how to direct propagation. And then what it does, it lets you constantly swing in new varieties and you're able to create your own varieties on a timely fashion that gets you a farm and a profit margin you need. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with all that, except for the don'ts for me. <laughs> and I watched all Kevin's videos. I was like, all right, I'm going to get this dialed in. I'm going to do it. No, I, I can't. I, I don't know what it is, but I can't cook rice. It's true. It's <laughs> not <laughs>
So when you look at moon planting, you'll learn a lot about that it goes in and out of the zodiac signs that are two to three days. So throughout, throughout a 29-day cycle, or a 28-day cycle, depending on the moon, it goes through all of the zodiac signs within that 28 and 29-day cycle. Yeah. So I was uh, reading the Maria Sun biodynamic calendar earlier, or like even this might have been from a couple of years back, but uh, talking about more than the waxing and waning, about whether the moon is ascending or descending, because as the moon is going through the horizon every month, it like will either be rising each night and or sinking each night in the horizon. That's the waning and waxing. Okay, I thought that was more. I thought those were like just the crescent. It, it still is, it, it's ascending when it starts to wax it, and then it descends when it wanes. So that goes, you know, all the way up to, you know, a height of the waning, and then it, you know, wanes, and then it starts to wax. So that it, ascending as it's waxing. Yeah, and um, also, I don't know if we touched on it, but just, you know, knowing that we have some of our healthy mothers and stuff, but if you don't know that you have broad mites or if you don't know that you have urified mites, that can also greatly affect your, your propagation roots. So having a microscope and checking your leaves and, and knowing that you have healthy mothers going into your clone is extremely important. So that's going to extremely speed up your... I'm just wondering if you have any like uh, tricks for preparing the mother before you cut from it, like uh, to bolster its immunity or its nutrition? <laughs> the question is, is there any tricks to having your plant at its healthiest point when you're going to, to clone it, right? Yeah, just, um, I guess if there's like, I've heard people spraying, you know, to try to increase in nutrient content or ways to try and make their mother plant as healthy and robust as possible before you cut from it, just wondering if, if that's part of it. Yeah, I mean, having your plant, um, you know, that's where I, also the, the waxing phase of the moon, when the moon's starting to get full, the plant is reaching and growing at its fullest potential, so you're going to see more green on the end of your stems, and if you have, like, a good biological soil where your roots are not um, uh, root-bound at all and you have a lot of root growth and stuff, whenever your roots are expanding and your plants are reaching, is going to be your best way to, you know, to get a, a, a mom to... To, or to have clones come from that environment. And having some kind of biological, um, you know, FPJ or some kind of good, you know, um, plant juice that you can spray on the plant in that two weeks going up towards the full moon, you know, is a great way to, to prepare your plant and give it, um, you can even do horsetail um, silica, you know, beforehand, and that can help a lot before propagation. I was just going to say, I uh, do multiple water colors and I link them together. You know, I just pump them together like you would an aquaponics system and have one main reservoir that has a water chiller on it, 68. And it has aquarium pump, aquarium meters, 68. And then a uh, pH meter, 5.8. And I dip them, dip an aloe, and then that's all I do. I add the folic acid once I get roots. So, just to, uh, yeah.
it's for a lot of people to function of uh, simplicity. And so if I can carpet uh, a footprint and use fresh juvenile material from that as my, my donor spot, then I'm always gonna have better results. But then I have to have a, a different type of infrastructure to grow that. And if I'm trying to hold mom's stock, it's trying to be simplified. I think what happens with mothers, right, is you, you cut them back, but the problem is you don't balance the root zone with them. So what you're doing is you're creating a situation where the roots are demanding too much of the, of the nutrient source is no longer available because you've traced back so much of this plant. And so what you have to end up doing is pulling the plant out and cut the root ball back and then put it back in and then regrow that. As, and, and the speed of regrowth will be quick you'll actually have a, a, a very different type of growth because the root stimulation will be spurned. And but that's what it is. It's dependent on how much, you know, what you have to work with. You have, you have enough space to hold tables and materials so you can get the fresh, because if you go with the mother, you can go vertical. And you can have a series of mothers in a space and be pretty efficient. If I can get, you know, 2,000 cuttings off of 36 square foot, if, you know, every 15 to 18 days on a footprint, that's pretty good. But so if someone just needs to have some mom stock to donate plants for their gardens and their farms, but at a small level, it makes more sense to keep it as a, a mom, and then take that material and prop that, and then cut that material for your actual propagation. See, I like water cloners for this purpose, like this, is they're so efficient in what they do. Just make sure you have the transfer space. And if you're working with numbers that are big, there's a difference between cutting a couple clones and cutting a couple lot of clones. And when, once you start talking a lot of clones, it's a, it's a so you have to be able to figure out what you need to manage for your farm. And if you're not going to sell plants to other people, don't increase your facility bigger than you need. Because that's just on and being money you're going to spend on electricity. And so if you're just trying to do basic propagation, keep it simple. And that's where the, the base farm holds. And then from there, you can create small tables to donate from that are going to be fresh stock. And that way, you're able to keep yourself moving your best practice. But no matter what, you're going to have pathogens coming in, old plants and new plants. They're coming in a, and all the plants just typically hold the problem better because there's more branching, so you're not able to get as much coverage and, and more density needed on, on biologicals. So more expensive than short footprint, but they both work. I just wanted to comment on the, the water cloners. Um, I've moved away from water cloners personally, and it isn't because they aren't better or anything else. They absolutely are. I agree with everything they just said. The problem is, is that the employees screw up. <laughs> and if the pump, if they don't clean that pump, or they don't clean the sprayer heads or whatever, every single one of those 130 or 170 or whatever your tray is, is dead. If that if that timer fails on that pump, they're dead in a couple of hours. So so I've had, I've moved away with them at least for certain, some people, because I, I can run that place like clockwork, but I'm not the one running it. I have to rely on employees that are the tenth of the skill level or the tenth of training level or just aren't as experienced and they don't see things that are gonna happen the same way or they aren't yeah, they aren't paid enough or you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> or you lose electricity because of a windstorm or something like that. So yeah. I, again I think it matters on how much you're trying to produce. If you're not trying to produce as a nursery, then it makes more sense to keep your, your mothers fresh. I've got a smaller so um, I've got a smaller scale propagation question. So um, I actually realized my problem today listening to Leighton and Elaine. Um, I've got uh, compacted soil in my pots, which has made my tops uh, hydrophobic. And I'm like, all right, 
you know, <laughs> like this is good. And, and also, you know, a lot of the patients that I work with, I mean, I see this all the time, right? And, but, but it's not like a commercial grow where if your pots get like that, um, you know, it's not worth the time and the effort, so you dump her and you just move on, right? For a lot of these patients, they only have five or six plants, and that's that's a significant part of what, let alone the emotional connection patients have, or me, me too, with when you're only doing small amounts. So, my question is, is how would you uh, uh, go about rehabbing that plant once it's reached um, that level? The only thing I can think of is pulling her out, chopping the bottom, putting new stuff at the bottom, and hoping it works like Kevin just described, where it kicks out again. But I'd love to hear any of your thoughts about uh, saving these plants that have already got like atrocious soil, but you really want to save the plant for either, um, well, for any reasons I said. We've seen tremendous, um, you know, things really pick up in a situation like that if you start doing cover cropping of some really vigorous uh, type of plants whose roots will go down into that system and really break it up to create more of a balanced, um, you know, hydro. And I think that that's been really successful for us. Yeah, it definitely will. You know, there's a lot of different plants that you can utilize that have very, you know, strong root systems and they don't need a whole lot to get started, like alfalfa is one. It's a, it'll, it'll break up a lot of that compacted layer really pretty immediately. And if you're getting nutrients in that, you know, as soon as the roots get down into that, that hydrophobic area, you know, of the plant, then you can be teeing it and, and it'll follow the root zone of the cover crop that you use, and just alfalfa is a really good one for that because it's so incredibly vigorous. I mean, if you can clone it, you know, and get it into a better soil situation and have, you know, depending on how much time you have, that makes a lot of sense because then you're just getting out of that whole stagnant situation because that's essentially what we're trying to do is figure out how to, you know, if you, if, if you, if you have to keep it, then just, I think what Kevin was saying was just by, you know, scraping the roots or cutting to, to invigorate growth again and then transplant it is going to be your, you know, your best bet in transplanting. So I think one of the critical things to point out is you're growing containerized indoor with these plants or patio plants. meeting. 
So you have to be very careful. I don't know what to tell you to do, but I just I'm gonna t t I'm gonna tell you that you, you're indoors. You're statistically setting yourself up potentially for pest issues, even though it may help the soil compaction. Pick and choose your battles. seems to be heading towards indoor polyculture, right? Like, like being able to have the root systems talk to each other and you know the, the, the variety of microbes that work with each uh, rhizosphere, right? But what you just said is like Ebola, you know? It's like, <laughs> I heard about the attraction of all these new, new insects that we're not familiar with. I'm gonna tell you, if you decide to do this and you're here today, don't call me when you have problems. <laughs> because I'm telling you, unless you really know what you're That's doing, yeah, that's true. Um, but I think that we're not, and, and this is the problem that, and I'm going to be real honest, in the past, five years ago, not not people necessarily on this panel, but, oh, we've got garden flea hopper, spray with orthene, spray with malathion, and that's the reality of it. And they were using chemistries. Now that people are becoming more aware that, yeah, maybe smoking malathion's not good. You know, and they're diving back these chemistries. We're seeing more pests. Also, I am warning every cannabis grower, look what's coming upwind from you. Because when somebody puts in 5,000 acres of hemp, because whether you call it hemp, cannabis, or whatever, pretty much has the same pest complex. And when you've got 5,000 acres that are breeding broad mites, area mites, you know, hemp aphid, and it's going to blow downwind into your crop because outdoor hemp that is not managed well, and since we don't have any registered pesticides, because the reality is, is we're going to have what, what, what are called Budweiser farms, where most people here are the craft beer farms. Um, but those Budweiser farms are coming, and they're not going to grow as much quality, and with if they get, you know, it changed to the federal government, they are going to use pesticides and they're just going to suppress them enough, but we're still going to have major blow-in problems because it's a current issue I deal with in Florida with citrus, a lot of their pests blowing into ornamentals, we have tomato stuff blowing into other, and, and this is what happens when the winds blow, um, and we don't even know everything cannabis gets yet. My list grows every single week as I travel around the country in Canada looking at what now is feeding with <coughs> cannabis. But since I work in Florida and California and Texas and Maine and North Carolina, I'm seeing it across the board. And when everybody brings their plants to events like this, and oh, let me business, and the, the industry has completely given itself, and for us at night, they've completely given themselves root aphid. I mean, this is thoroughly done, the industry has done it to itself, and it's gonna get worse because there's not a lot of research going on right now. There's limited research because of, you know, the United States, the whole federal issue. Um, there's a little going on. Um, there's a little bit what I call black market research where I've convinced some guys to do some stuff for me behind closed doors that will never be published. Um, and in um, Canada, they're gearing up to do some research, um, but we just have to make sure the research is done on the right things. But you don't want to make your system so complex you, you lose control of what's going on. That's so why I don't have a good answer to say do this and do that, but this is why we Before you jump in, Wayne, can I just say like there's a lot lost in translation, I think, in the cannabis community, uh, strands, strains, cultivars. <laughs> but like cover crops. The cover crop is something that a farmer plants and grows up and, and tills back in. We kind of mistakenly <laughs> use that term 
and those varieties of plants, uh, the clovers, the ryegrasses, um, as a living mulch, which is really the term we should be using. Um, so my question to you is, how do you feel about the living mulches that we've been talking about, the low-growing perennial, uh, the, the creeping thyme, lavender, the little... Well, okay, for me, like, <coughs> lavender gets pest issues. Lavender has disease issues. I mean, they, they all do, and that's why you have to look at geographically where you are in the United States, because, I mean, lavender tends to like a bit drier of a climate, arid-wise, um, and I'm talking about the low, you know, the low growing, you know, ground cover, not like big lab. Right. No, no. I would look, before you make a decision, I would research that plant and see what the common pest problems are of that plant and to help make that decision. But again, a lot of times you don't know until you do it. You know, because we try, you know, the banker plant systems, we try stuff that we think is a great idea and it's like, oh crap, that didn't work. There was a banker plant trial where they were trying- What's a banker plant? A banker plant is an alternate food source for your beneficials. I'm gonna cover all that tomorrow. Um, but so basically you, you, they were growing corn with banks grass mite to rear predatory mites on so that you can keep up your predatory mite population. Um, and this was working in some research situations in Florida, but then they tried <coughs> to do it in New York State and the banks grass mite moved into the tomato crop. They're trying to work with when in, in theory it shouldn't have done that, but it sure did and damaged the crop. And so again, even if you do your homework and you think it might work until you test it in your situation. Um, but I don't have the exact date. We just have to wait and see. But be prepared that this can happen. And I, the other thing that I keep seeing on Instagram is people are like, well, look. We've got phospholipid on our cannabis. Well, it's not because that is coming from the cover crops, and it's not cycling on the cannabis, but it's cycling on the the, the cover crop. Well, and the question is, is your grower going to be willing to have insects marching around on on the understory of their plants, on the, the living mulch, um, even though it's not a pest to the cannabis, but oh, it, it's going to destroy the the cover crop. And so that, there's a lot of different things going on because like foxglove aphid, I have, every time someone said it's been foxglove aphid, it's not been foxglove aphid on cannabis. Um, and I think it's, it's a cover crop issue there because those are the only people that say they have it are cover crop people. So. And then the other, I'll give it to later too, but the other term is uh, polyculture or uh, companion planting. And that's when you're planting plants with, you know, mixed in with your crop that give them certain benefits, maybe pest resistance, or they add a, a nutrient that the other plant is uh, required. So, Shango, I wanted to that. address your, your direct question a little bit and say that, okay, so some people do companion planting. My idea would be mitigate that problem before it happens. If it's already happened, just go compost. Do, do something on top to get rid of that hydrophobic layer. A nice thick layer, two to three inches of a really good compost for earthworm casting should get rid of that really fast. Build up. You got it. And and you'll also your plant will regrow roots along that whatever is covered will will root out. You'll get new fresh roots that will propagate in the layer of compost or earthworm castings. Um, also, for those of you that are not living doing all the stuff that you're just growing in pro mix or the simple stuff. Um, 
If your soil will become hydrophobic, then all you need is a wetting agent to wet it back up. If you have any peat based in your soil, which I know that this group, this group tends not to be, but some people still do, just be aware that generally when you get a commercial back potting soil, it comes under the charge of a wetting agent, which does break down, and then you get that hydrophobic layer on the soil that if you water, it runs down and out, but a wetting agent easily re-wets up the soil. There's plenty um, already listed products that are approved to be used in organic production that are yucca and coconut based that you can use. So that's where the other side would be. No way. Use your compost. Polyculture is the future. And maybe we don't have all the answers yet. Maybe that's why it's so important as a community you all try different things and then talk to each other and you let each other know what's going on. These plants can also act as bank plants, they can act as trap plants. But the key with trap plants is if you're not paying attention, if you're not being the farmer's shadow, you're screwed because now that thing is gonna infest everything. So if you bring in a trap plant, you gotta look at it daily. Always keep an eye on it because it's going to attract the pests, but it's also gonna tell you what's in your neighborhood. Shit, that, that plant, that farm, that hemp farm that went in down the street, now I know they're coming and I can buy some products to help fight this stuff back. <laughs> uh, I've had enough. <laughs> Um, I think that it's very, very important that our compare and contrast is not necessarily comparing and contrasting to synthetic bad agricultural practices. That's like saying we're going to have two different sides on the health and well-being of the human being and we're going to take somebody who has stage four cancer and we're going to say, wow, you know, he didn't do very well with nettle tea, but we're going to have this really great person who's totally healthy and amazing. You get them nettle tea and they're going to thrive from it immediately. It's the difference of somebody that you're maybe trying to have like a cough and a cold issue, somebody that's got stage four cancer. And I think a lot of what Suzanne is talking about is this compare and contrast with really synthetic, large, big ag. That is not our compare and contrast in this room here. I think that we need to be comparing and contrasting with better practices and things that make a lot more sense than uh, you know, things that are harming our planet and harming our, and our plant. I wanted to kind of address your, your original question, which was like, what is the ocean button when my plant's not quite doing well? What can I do to revive this plant? Um, I did a bunch of experiments, and the best thing I've found as a holy barrel ocean button is uh, labs with seaweed extract. Uh, and after a two to three week uh, fermentation, I've had plants, so my, my ex didn't water my plants for two weeks. Every single leaf was might as well have been paper because the infestation it crumbled. You guys, you guys have seen this, right? When plants are just roasted, we put some of that seaweed extract with labs on. And I got pictures of this, both with peppers and cannabis. If anyone thinks I'm full of shit, I'm happy to show you. Uh, Rootrash, Thank you very much. Um, uh, we applied it to it, and we got new growth at every single node after not being watered for two weeks. And I got pictures to document that. So that was when we realized that some of the stuff with the ferments, that, that was the exact event where like, there's more to this ferment stuff than when we need to like, go down that rabbit hole. But if, if I just had a really jacked up plant and I was like, this is the last plant that I have, I gotta save these genetics, I would hit it with that and then I would take clean clones like they talked about and try to feed it up you know, that way. But just to get that, re, you know, bounce that vigor back temporarily, I think would be a really great way to, um, you know, 
give you that temporary boost so you could get those clean clones and, and get that back to the state where it was workable again. Right on. I, I can see that, especially if it's a, if it's a nutrition or you know, a chemical problem, shall we say. Would that help at all with the compaction example? I Absolutely. If you go to my um, my Instagram, you can actually see some pictures of uh, the eight or nine day application with the, with the keeper ferment. Um, or the Kiefer version of labs, <coughs> and it just visible mycorrhizal fungi. Even I've even had it within four or five days, like just a forest of of, of uh, hyphae across. So and I can show you. I can show, I'd happily pull up pictures and stuff. But, you know. <laughs> just saying. Thank you to everybody on the panel. So really appreciate hearing from everyone. Um, and not comparing ourselves to big ag, but also knowing that there are some people who are growing six plants. Um, but also people who are looking to do it on a commercial scale and knowing what we are up against with the synthetics and the people who are passing microbial tests and their pesticides and heavy metal tests. Can you talk a little bit about passing those tests <coughs> on the commercial level because it's, you know, you don't have the option to fail if you're doing it at that scale. Uh, before that, I'll tag on, you know, what is big ad, what is commercial, what, you know, there's, there's some terms to define in there for um, well, big ag is generally referred to as the mechanized, you know, farming aspect where, you know, it's direct feeding and pesticide or herbicide use and just basically more of a nuclear style of growing and it's large scale and, and it's more forced style of growing and that's why regenerative agriculture is so important now because there's nothing that can hold in the, the nutrients. Um, there's nothing that can give the plant an immune boost to be able to not need so much of those, those um, stimulants or pesticides. So that's why regenerative agriculture has become such an important thing because, you know, it's, it's rehealing the land. And, and then when it comes to, you know, small farmers, I mean, the small farmers we feel like could save the world or the small farmers might have to be the ones to save the world because for sure big ag is not going to save the world. They're killing us along with the pharmaceuticals or the pharmaceuticals, so they're, they're harmonies. Um, so that's why it's important for us to have these discussions and give thanks to everyone for all the attention you're putting into your gardens, because we're up here, you're down here, but we all have farms and we're all doing our best to, to make it work. Um, as far as passing tests, that's probably one of the most important questions that could be asked tonight, because um, it, it's a big problem, and every state has different regulations on what that means, and then there's Canada, and there's the US, and there's other countries, so I think you just want to look at the most strict areas and find out what it takes to, to make it work there, which would be, you know, maybe California in some cases right now, and uh, also in Canada. Um, so, and Nevada, I mean, there, there's, every state has to be a different, you know, Oregon doesn't have microbial counts, so there's no, you know,
what are you going to do about the heavy metal testing? And my response was nothing. I, I don't need to do anything. I know my soil is fine. Everybody said, have you tested your soil? No, I didn't test my soil. No, we didn't have an assay to test our flower until recently. And um, we got our cat free testing back. Everything's passing with flying colors. So there's a lot of rumors that go on out there. A lot of them are truth-based, but not actually accurate. Uh, one of the big arguments I got into last year was about chicken manure. Uh, there's a gentleman who said, if you have ever used chicken manure on your farm, you will fail for arsenic testing. Quote, unquote. I'm not kidding you, this was a direct quote. Or rice holes is the other, the other big one that people talk about a lot. Um, you know, it's just not true. The, 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 um, article that you quoted was from 2008, I think, and it was about Purdue pelletized chicken manure. But, I mean, we're not going to do that anyway. Um, so, you know, if you're doing this regeneratively, you're living, I mean, our farm is, you know, we're, I used to consider it a mid-sized farm. I now consider it a very small farm. We have 18,000 square feet. We have 10,000 square feet of light debt, 8,000 square foot of full-term outdoor. And everything is coming back great. We have contact with our native soil. We use our water. Um, we don't have greenhouses. We do light up by hand pulling tarps for the lowest um, temperature in the time. So usually at 4 a.m. and then uncovering sometime around 7 or 8 a.m. And you know, if you're you've got all this natural stuff happening, and you know you're in an area that you're okay. I mean, you guys we're close to Flint, right? So you might be running into problems with your water. I would be very actually concerned about that in this area. I wouldn't go through right now and get your water tested and get your soil tested and be proactive about it. If you have heavy metal in your soil, there are natural mitigation techniques that you can use to get rid of it. There's a lot of study going on right now about the rolling pulley bugs. Apparently they're a phenomenal bioremediator for heavy metals. But they'll eat them and then when roly pulleys die in the soil, what happens to the heavy metals? Is it Enough. Yeah, well, it'd be interesting to see because my concern, like, I think you need to look at what state you're in, where you're just exactly what you said, because I live in Pennsylvania where there's been a lot of metal mining and there's a dead zone I have to drive through all the time. And it's it just nothing has grown there for years. It looks like, you know, somebody came through with flamethrowers over, you know, like 40 acres. And the concern is what's What's in there, and they're doing some local remediation to try to get some plants to pull stuff out because there's been a lot of work on the plant material there. But what in somewhat pristine where you are is very different than industrialized, exactly what you said. Pennsylvania and Michigan and Ohio, we've had a lot of stuff done to our water, a lot to our soils. Um, and me working from everything from small regenerative people all the way up to the mega farms, and I mean, hate me if you know I work with mega farms, but my job is to reduce pesticide usage. This is all I've done my entire life, all I've ever wanted to do, and I don't care if a grower is spraying Orthene 7 pylon, if I can get them to stop doing that, that's my job, and to teach them how to use the bugs. And one thing on the heavy metal, because I have a grower down in Texas, they are required down there to have their own heavy metal testing equipment and they test their own crops. That piece of machine's about half a million dollars that they had to buy. So yeah, and they can't they cannot test anybody else's product, only in-house their own. And they pay a guy to put a sample in and hit a button. I mean, yeah. <coughs> but point being, 
the heavy metals. I had one grower a couple years ago um, out in Oregon, and she made all her employees have basically a heavy metal blood test. And she said it was pretty eye-opening for her because her employees, because of consumption of their product, because she was not aware that cannabis was a heavy metal accumulator, she said it was very scary to test results. That, but their concern is once you start looking because you just had a situation with a grower detecting arsenic and we were trying to figure out where it was coming from it actually was coming from the sulfur sprays yeah yeah and so that's where and you know there's been discussion about the fiber pots because i know they're testing more of those and they're coming back with heavy metals you know and a lot of the traditional even Omri approved fertilizers that are used for in the tomato organic industry. Since tomato is not a heavy metal accumulator, no one's been concerned with that, and it's a very different plant. Again, it goes back to testing. Yeah. MMI, Micro Macro International, sent down heavy metal tests aren't that expensive. So test your pots, test your soils, test your water. Cover your ass, CYA. Because you never know, like we're finding out some of these products that were so certified and be okay are problematic because guess what? We tested in the beginning and then they manufacture the shit out of it and guess what? They're not testing anymore. So you have to be proactive in all of this. You know what? All right. We're talking about testing, but what you also have to do too is you gotta test you have to test the plants that you're gonna utilize for viral and funding. Because that's going to cause you as much problems as anything else you have an issue with, and so you have to you have to just do that yourself. Just send it into an outside lab and test your material, and then figure out where you're at with that. And if you're a nursery operator, I'm seeing people getting sued for this, and so they don't realize that there's an issue with the plant. The plant goes into the market. the The new world of investment is always a legal team in house, so no one wants to take responsibility. What's occurred, so they're going to look for who they can pin it on. And I've seen a tremendous number of these big new nurseries. These guys have been funded the sharp, but they get nailed with lawsuits. And so, and it's all this stuff like that that it's hard to detect sometimes. And so, you have to basically make sure you're scanning your own stock. And if it's your in house stock for your production, it's worth scanning it. And, and I recommend people that realize that those are the kind of things that they don't, they don't test for for selling the product, but you as the cultivator that test for it, so that way you have an idea. And then they're recommending to test all the input material, and I agree with that. But you really need to take a look at what you're using, and then do your R&D tests, but they're expensive. So I this is cheap, and that's what makes it tough, because it, it kind of taps into your real budget <coughs> of how much investigative work you need to find out that the products you're buying and using and bringing in are contaminated. And you just have to make sure that you're able to budget that into what you do and then, and then figure out if you have clean material, you know you're good. If you can keep it clean, you're good for a minute. And if you have clean material, you know it's good. And there's people you know that need that material, they can source it from you. But you're going to see a tremendous amount of new pathogens coming into Canvas because of that cross-reference that Suzanne said. That she's as accurate as it can be on that. But all of a sudden, the world changed for us. And so you have to kind of do your own diagnostics and then worry about what the state is going to give you for the standards. And when you test your plants, don't tell them it's cannabis. <laughs> I was going to say, Kelly, I think 
you want to hop in, but I also want to bring up the, the microbiological test and like spraying, you know, different things. If people have a lot of concern, if I spray compost tea, you know, you do it in flour, when can you do it? You know, how's it work in testing? Well, that's that, and that's the whole entire purpose of the pure certification that we came up with was all those years ago is because clones were becoming an issue with with extracts, and then it was Omri listed, you know, products were all of a sudden, you know, failing tests, and all of a sudden farms were losing hundreds of pounds. It, it turned what was kind of an idealistic, you know, naturalist, kind of hippie type thing to want something natural, and turned into like, oh shit, this is the real thing, this is serious, and that's why regenerative agriculture has taken off so much, because it's the realization of the plant is a dynamic accumulator, it's even a, a pest accumulator, if you want to say, it's a, extremely sensitive. So, um, you know, you, you can, that's why we, we put the pure certification, it was like, we cannot trust Omri, it's not an organic certification <coughs> for use in organic agriculture. And if you're in a certain setting where that might get eaten away, then that's, you know, then you might be lucky, but that's not the case with us right now. So really any sprays that are coming out of a bottle um, are a potential harm for you in the flower cycle and even beforehand. So that's, and even with KNF or any kind of natural farming, one thing you have to be extremely mindful of is using all organic inputs. Um, you might want to cut a corner and try, and try and save money by, you know, using strawberries that are not organic, but there's a lot of microbutanol. It's, it's okay to spray microbutanol on strawberries. So like, I think with weed, we're, we're getting tested through the wazoo because it's a, a fume, it's fumigating or it's turning into smoke, and that does change the compounds, you know, rather than eating it, but still we're gonna learn a lot about what's in our food stream. So our food is also unhealthy, and if we were testing everything in our thing, it would be this, probably a revelation. So, um, it's, it's really important that, um, you know, again, we're really mindful. All of our products that we make with Dragonfly Earth Medicine are um, human health tested for heavy metals and have been since the day one. And that's why we don't go with agricultural, um, uh, just agricultural standards, we go with human health standards. And I think a good question, sort of going back to what we were talking about before, is that, you know, we're all wondering about, you know, can we successfully scale this? You know, can we successfully scale cannabis? My question is, is the scalable big ag successful? What are we what are we comparing and contrasting it to? So I think yes, we can have successful, scalable, but we can't compare it and contrast it to big ag because big ag has not shown us that they can pass these tests. We live up in Canada, we're seeing a tremendous amount of these large big ag models in cannabis and their uh, you know they're failing tests left, right, and center. And it's no problem for them because they can go ahead and fail tests because they have the insurance and the insurance actually pays them more than the crop would pay them. So for them to be able to stay in the game, it's fine. But for us here in this room to stay in the game, like Leighton was saying, you know, you can't have a failed crop. It's not, it's not a potential, it's not a possibility. So, you know, testing your inputs and, and people in the peer certification have been testing a lot of Omri certified products and you can always ask us, hey, is this a product been tested by any of your crew? Because we have a very long, long, long list of ones that have been tested now that we know are good and not good. But it goes again back to closed loop. The more closed loop that you are, the less questioning that you have. And Wendy said she doesn't question her soil because she doesn't need to. She's not really bringing in anything that's going to harm it or that's going to fail tests. So I had two points I wanted to bring up on this topic. Um, uh, so first off, um, 
But when you're testing for microbes, what are they testing? Does anyone here know? They're testing what'll grow on agar. So if you hit it with a strong, and this is according to Elaine, I haven't done this, but according to Elaine, um, if you hit it with a strong rotifer or, or protozoa tea, what are you gonna do? You're gonna eat all those fungal and, and, and bacterial spores that are going to colonize that. So if you could out, you know, in theory at least, out-compete them by having them consumed by a, a higher microbe, you know, you could potentially come in under your, your 10,000 CFU plant count, which I guarantee I haven't done that, but there's other people out there that have, or at least I've heard that repeated enough times to where it seems like so there's enough people out there. The other thing is, is that what are your options? If you did have something you thought was going to test on, you kind of had two options, UV sterilization, which is going to degradate your THC in the CDN, and an ozone treatment, which again, oxidation is going to reduce your THC. So you're kind of stuck. You know, you're, you're, you kind of have three options. You can treat it microbial. If you have, if you're doing a probiotic, you know, foliar application of compost teas and things, you're left with either microbially treating them using ozone or UV. Unless someone on this panel knows of a, a fourth or fifth option, I don't know of any other way to treat it. Which stuff is just you, you treat it by not using those cultivars that are prone to those problems. So you kind of you kind of help yourself by not shoehorning shit into the direction you're supposed to go. And and you have to see it that way that not every region can produce what's trendy right now. You develop things that are quality and that really is never not trendy. And well but it's a lot of it too is people have a, a fear of not being able to sell the product. So they end up they end up riding a hype train of this is what I know is hot. If I get there, maybe I'll succeed. And what you do is you put yourself in a terrible position because that variety is prone to issues, and in your area that might be the real issue. And so you have to do R and D. And so what you do is every year you start putting out varietals that you can actually look at over time and start to test and say this one here seems with zero application of anything seems to have no problems. And those become valuable. They're your real business backup so that when the season is tough, these are the ones that you're able to have um, actual market penetration. And if the markets are collapsing for people, it's amazing how other varietals are suddenly attractive when it's all on the shelf. And so that's kind of real. Once, once testing comes in, it changes the population of varietals that are available to be sold. And you're going to see huge overproduction of things that are easy to grow and a lot less production of things that are difficult. But it's in those difficult markets that your money is. And so you're going to find that little Venn diagram of what's tough enough that dissuades most. But if I add a little extra effort, I can pull it off. And that's, that's real life. Again, I think it's layout competition. So if you're worried about biological, don't spray it at flower. You know, use a drench. Again, you need common sense science. If you are using folders right up to flower, it might be a good idea to do a protozoa tea uh, and put predators on it so that they are consuming any excess. But we know for sure if the leaf surface is covered with healthy biology, you will pass. But it's important if you don't have it, you're going to get pests. You're going to have other pressures. You're going to have probability. That goes back to the cultivar. The cat's just talking. So there's a lot to this, and you've got to pay attention to all these pieces. Um, so take your notes, all right? You're actually not necessarily going to pass if you're covered with healthy microbiology. If you have an aerobic plate count, you will fail for that, even if it's healthy, because they are not looking for pathogenic versus non. So 
So, well, well, it depends on the testing, ladies. So California moved from an aerobic plate count, which was all microbiology, to only pathogenics. We fought for that really hard to change that testing and say, listen, if it's got aspergillus, salmonella, E. coli, and I think there's one other, leucemites or something like that, the listeria, thank you, yeah. Um, then if those are there at certain levels, you fail, but aerobic plate count now is not causing failure. Last year, it did. And how did you change that, Wendy? We changed that, oh God, don't get me on this one. All right, no, through policy and advocacy. This, working together as yes. tell the government what you need instead of sitting home and whining about it and not being involved. There's a huge, 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 huge need for advocacy and policy and working together. If you are not in a political action committee that has a lobbyist that's fighting for you, you better fucking join one. I'm dead serious. <laughs> I just wanted to add something that I've learned the last two or three years on, because um, you guys mentioned sulfur earlier. Um, anytime you have a foliar spray, and this particularly is for you guys going after CBD and, and CBG in particular. Um, anytime you spray your, your foliar spray, okay, if I'm harvesting that biomass after the fact, even if it's in veg, okay, there's a chance that those oils, in particular when you do the sulfur burners and veg, that sulfur will get into those smaller two trichome heads. Because remember, your your your, one, your smaller ones are actually in either at least an immature or, or a pre-state in veg. And what's going to happen? That that oil or that gas is going to permeate that gland head and then contaminate it. And and it was that uh, Marcus talked about this in Vancouver about you can take a plant even if it was sulfur burned in veg and then take it and burn the hash afterwards and it smells like burnt matches. It ruins the hash. So if you're doing post-extraction, do not ever consider using a sulfur burner unless you're maybe eating clones of the last resort because it's the last two damn clones you got. You know what I mean? But certainly never. Yeah, exactly. But, but I'm just saying like, no, but I hear micronized sulfur and sulfur burners recommended all the damn time. Fucking throw up um, when I look, excuse my French, but like, 
the way it's going. So I, I would just love to hear some comments on the panel, just like what, what that transition looks like and, and how people have made it, or even just your thoughts on it. Like, it, is it even worth it? Because for us, it's like the consulting agencies and to try to do it on our own without getting outside investment coming in is, uh, is really, really tricky and hard and trying to look at navigating that. So I, I hope I made that question kind of clear. Yeah, California has been, it's been a really rough transition for California too, especially coming from Humboldt County. We're in that same position. It's been decades and decades of heritage knowledge and farming and doing what we do and doing what we do very exceptionally well. And you know, three years ago, you'd ask the average Humboldt farmer who decided they wanted to join the legal market, you know, how do you feel? And everybody's like, sweet, this is awesome, we're gonna crush it. You ask them now, nine tenths of them aren't even in the market anymore. So I'm not gonna sugarcoat it and say it's easy. I'm not gonna say it's simple. I am gonna say, God damn, avoid the consultants. Okay, they're gonna crush you. They are extremely expensive. There are some that, okay, in Canada maybe it's different, um, but I know that in California, they were, you, the second you say cannabis, a general website goes from 5,000 to 15,000. And the second you say cannabis, your water consultation goes from 3,000 to 30,000. It's just they instantly think they can overcharge, and it's really, really not all consultants. There are some amazing consultants <laughs> that don't care that you're in cannabis and are actually very excited to collect your bugs in little jars of alcohol. <laughs> For free. <laughs> um, but yeah, people, yes. Yeah. So, well, with your licensing in California, people went down this road. They hired consultants for $60,000 to help them with their license. And what happened is those people overcommitted, they weren't able to get them done in time, those people now don't have licenses, and they don't know what the hell happened with the licensing process. For us, I did pretty much all of our licensing. We had a water consultant because I was like, I know for a fact that I am not strong in this area. Acre feet of water converted from this and that and points of diversion and CDFW, too much for me. So I, but I asked around and I made sure that I found the most badass consultant who wasn't gonna overcharge me, I'm very happy with them. I'm still with them three years later. They're the only ones. I did have some other consultants early on that basically just led me to some very bad lawyers and some very poor decisions. And at that point I said, you know, if I'm gonna do this, I need to know this stuff myself because when somebody comes to inspect me and believe it, this will happen at the federal level as well, when the federal levels fall, the walls fall, and everybody's so excited that this is gonna happen, please read the bills, you guys. I know they're dredged today, they're hard, I know they're ridiculously long, there's a lot of really awkward verbiage that you have to learn. Read it anyway, don't just vote on it because, yay, weed for everything sounds awesome, okay? There's a lot of subtle stuff in there, you gotta be really careful. Yeah, I know, Canada, all right, right, in Canada is different, but, but, yeah, okay, so my, the bottom takeaway for me with Canada and with anybody who wants to get into this is if you're doing it strictly for the money, find something else. If you're doing it because you have a passion for this and you believe in it and this speaks to like the core of who you are and you're like, I can't do anything else. This is what I have to do with my life. You're gonna go for it. And don't give up and don't let anybody sideswipe you or get you away from that, but find your community that will back you up because you will have days that you are pretty sure a long jump off a tall bridge is gonna be a hell of a lot better than facing this again tomorrow. And that's when you turn to your friends and you go, God, Kevin, I'm 
not gonna make it. And he goes, no, 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 we got this, we got this. <laughs> or maybe Kevin doesn't say that sometimes. <laughs>
and then you're gonna go, and the whole time you're doing it, everyone around you is gonna watch you ride this, this shit down into a hole, and you're gonna make everyone around you terrified because they're, they're gonna think you lost your mind, and the only way that you're gonna be able to maintain any kind of belief in it is that you have a clear plan, and that you can see milestones, and that you can actually answer these questions, and your predictions are correct. I said it was gonna hit this at this point, look, that's where we are. I think we're gonna go here, look, this is my research, this is where we are. You are extremely objective. You throw all your emotional shit away. And you look at this because the people that are coming to get you are playing that game. You keep your emotional stuff for your family and for your crowd. Because that's why you can't lose your integrity. You can't lose it with, with, with the people. You can't lose it with what you do. So you maintain it there. But you're crystal clear. You are no longer in the game you're in. And, the, and that you better be really clear about the finances. And so it's quick. 300 bucks an hour for a lawyer to sit down and have a conversation. It's not that expensive. Especially when they tell you, that doesn't make sense to me. Convince me. Well, you need to convince people who need real business, and you can't convince them, that it's not real business. And it, and it makes it really clear, it makes it very simple. And now they can say, hey, I can see the picture, I can see this, and then the accountant says, I can see the numbers, I can see the margin, this, this makes sense. That, that's a real prep for this. That's how you answer it. You know, wholesale, it, it, it varies, depends on who you are and your, your marketability. So some people are moving cannabis to larger distributors to 700. Some people are moving it to 4,000. Yeah, the 41 and the Biscotti went four grand. So the bottom line is, yes, it's happening. Somebody's doing it at a level bigger than you. I mean, it's real. It's very real. So be crystal clear that Monsters are delivering product at a price point you can't. Because you can't get shelf space, because you don't have the distribution chain which you tie up. You don't have the same control of the market. You don't have the ability to satisfy the, the, the need to get the public to recognize your product. You're begging them to buy this shit at a higher price because you're on a smaller scale and you're trying to convince people to suddenly grow a, a knowledge base overnight about how it's better. So it could be really clear where you're coming in at your price point. And be crystal clear as to where the product is going to be sold, who's going to pick it up from you, and what the distributor pace is, so that you're putting things that are going to make you look good, that allow your farm to have a good reputation. Because if you don't, by the time someone buys it, you look like you can't grow, even though know that's not true. So you got to look at this from this perspective of how do I get my product to market at a fast pace? How do I get cash back fast enough to stay liquid? And can I do it at what level right now? And a lot of it is once you, you can't answer those questions and when it makes sense, then it becomes a really dangerous journey to go forward. And I recommend that people just hang on a second because the truth is farms will be for sale in another couple of years and you'll be able to acquire operations that you couldn't build today. That's, that's, that's real business. I was just going to say in Washington, you go next on Canada, but in Washington we are we want like 700 pounds, a lot of growers would be stoked for $700 a pound. Like, I'm not joking, it's worth, worth in single grams packaged out the farm, $700 a pound they'd be stoked for. Honestly, I'm not, I'm not bullshitting. And you get like my, my license I bought for $75,000, I'd be lucky to sell for twenty. Um, to address what you were talking about specifically in the con and, and um, having uh, consultants, specifically what he's talking about is in Canada right now, Health Canada is not taking applications from anyone and they're not passing 
applications through unless it's gone through certain consulting agencies. These consulting agencies can cost up to $160,000. This is what we're talking about by consultants. It's not a chosen consultant, it's a forced consultancy. This is very different. So actually, I have run the numbers on, on the Canadian licensure and the micro licensure and then, and then the LP licensure. There is absolutely no way that micro licensing facilities can make money. Forget it. If you talk to your accountant, if you talk to your lawyer, if you run those numbers, those numbers are going to totally take you into the ground, and that was their plan from the beginning. Absolutely. Your medical permit is, is you should stick with your medical permit right now. And, and really and truly, we're talking about, you know, whether we're going to stay in the legal market or the black market right now. Well, right now, the black market in Canada is absolutely thriving, and, and, and it's going for a higher price than it was going for five years ago. So now we have to really look at that. I, I think that the most important thing that Canadians can do right now is just wait it out. Advocacy groups. Join together with other people because the laws need to be changed because the way that it is stands right now, and, and they are still being formed until Canada Day. So anybody that's out there on the live stream that's listening to this from Canada as well, we need to change those laws before Canada Day, which is July 1st, because then that's going to be shut down for us. July 1st is our time. This is the time to now join advocacy. You all know what I mean. I'm undermedicated. <laughs>
So I think we still have to go towards the trouble a little bit and try and make it work, you know? Um, but it's extremely daunting, and I feel for you because we're going through the same thing. But well, as soon as we go home uh, in the Nelson area in British Columbia, we're having these meetings with local law makers, and, and it's extremely important that you, you make that happen for you and talk about your, um, your issues. I just wanted to say something really quick that the Dalai Lama once said, it's one of my favorite quotes ever, is learn the rules so you know how to break them. I see a whole room full of outlaws and people that have brought this plan forward, so I think it is absolutely important to do as much, you know, uh, legal process as we possibly can, but once we learn how, you know, this legal process works, we need to change it. And that needs to be changed imminently. And what Josh said is it's really important too. Right now, CBD is wide open. The federal game coming in 2020, it's coming fast. It's gonna change the way that we look at cultivation methods, it's gonna change our SOPs, it's gonna change everything. Because we're no longer gonna be bound to the licensure of state to state, we're gonna be bound to the licensure of the feds. So that's why it's more important than ever that we need to break down these state lines. We need to all form together as people who are growing conscious cannabis. We need to come together. It doesn't matter what state we're in. It doesn't matter what country we're in right now. What our main thread is in being able to be successful is regenerative agriculture and growing a product that we know we can take to the international market that's going to be successful. So I was going to say that I want to build on what you just said because it's so powerful. Um, I, how many times have you guys heard, oh, well, small growers can't support the, the industry demand? Really? Who the fuck grew your wheat since 1934? <laughs> <laughs> For real. We supplied the entire industry, the entire country, where all of y'all's closets and all y'all's barns and all y'all's garages. So when someone tells you that small people don't have a place in this market, Ask them where they got their weed before a couple years ago. For real. Um, but what I wanted to say is, um, uh, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm the only person aside from YouTube who's applied for a Canadian license. Maybe, maybe Kevin has worked with something. Okay. So, guess how many pages are just our extraction facility list for the application? 1,400 pages. And we're somewhere between $85,000 and $110,000 deep in the application, and we filed it last June. And we've been burning cash and putting money on, on paying rent on a property and everything else since about a year before that. So how many thought, you know, it, it, it's, that, but at the same time working with people in Oklahoma, I get full vertical dispensary, manufacturing and cultivation for $7,500. So if you're passionate about this, don't stay where you're at. Go where the licensing makes sense. Like, like, I know that sounds crazy, but don't necessarily stay, like, just because you grew up in your area, that might not be the best business decision. If you're passionate about cannabis, it might make more sense for you financially to find someone in a different market that will allow you to get into it. Just because your state's jacked up doesn't mean you have to throw away your dream. You can absolutely move to a more favorable market. I'm not telling you absolutely do that every time, but don't close your mind to that idea. You might find one that's more receptive to what you're trying to do. That makes sense. Granted, I'm still in that, I'm still in queue, just the way that they're still in queue. Both of us have written countless letters to help Canada and a whole bunch of other stuff. But you have to do that outreach. You have to, and, and Kevin's done, and, 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 and Wendy and everybody else up here has done a lot of work, and, and you guys as well, at bringing the community together. And, and giving us the, the ability to work together to afford a lobbyist, to afford the kind of political clout that you have to have if you're gonna if you're gonna fight back because otherwise it's a bunch of people bitching it, to them. Because you know you need to do like what Kevin's done where you drag in people with walkers and you get the, you, you 
reach out to the elderly, or you reach out to the people that have kids that are suffering, you reach out to you know, everybody that's going to benefit from this and have the whole army of you come in, and not just a single soldier, because you won't win. Survive long enough 
and keep your farm active as you go forward so that when it cleanses, there is opportunity and there is clearly two defined markets, massive and micro. And we're micro, and they're massive, and there's nothing in between. And you have to make it that far. And, and that reality of it allows you to, to make better decisions on what you're doing because it lets you look down the road a little further. And you don't have such a knee-jerk response. And you've got to realize that you're being told who your competitors are, just like you've always been told who your competitors are. Because then it makes you think that we're fighting each other, not fighting someone else. And so the candidates primarily, none of us joined up, because we were all, we are going to jam up each other's markets. And like the market was so big, you could have thrown a buffalo into it away in your life. And we didn't realize that. And so now it's the same propaganda, but in a different way. And I think that people have to realize, you know, just be honest, can you or can you not have the farm? You might have to change what you do because that's really the reality of it. But if at all possible, how do you protect the land? Because that's really your value. And that is your long-term value. And as these craft markets emerge, it's a real estate game. That's what Napa is. It's a real estate game. It's really not about the grape. It's the perception of the grape. It can't be that much better. But the perception, but to the degree, but there's, but there's killer products, but there's, there's levels of... Yeah, but there are, but there's also other regions that have, even when I talk to people that I would consider really intelligent and great, it's marketing. And so the marketing is what drives the perception of value. For the most part, if no one knows you're out there, they don't buy your product. They you have to know. But that's, but... But that's I've never heard of those grapes. That's an appellation. Yes. I've never heard of those grapes. But that's a defined, it's a defined script that has a value to people who know grape. But the bottom line is that region advertised. So they're not single young individuals fighting that war on their own. They're doing it in a collective group. And that's, that's where really, where Raquel's saying that you have to, it's the same message. You have to work together in some capacity and team up so that you can figure out, you may not be able to run your farm, but you might be the right person to help create someone else's success and in that, you really want to take. You have to be able to use each other's toolbox. And you've got to admit who's got the best toolbox in each respective area, and then you just basically trust them like you always have, and you run with it. And that's how you survive this. You know, it, it's, a, it's a wild ride to get into a business that used to make a tremendous amount of money, and now doesn't make any money, and makes survival. And you know that that's the game because you've seen how it's played, and it's played just like any other investment. <coughs> where we're going to come at it so aggressively, we're going to blow through the competition. And then whoever survives it, they're the ones that come forward as the victors. And for us, because we're emotionally invested <coughs> in our life and our farms, you know, we get emotionally worked over. But they're not. This is very objective. It should be similar because when you mess around with law enforcement, you go they go home and they eat them. They wake up in the morning and chase you again where you're still in the bushes at four o'clock in the morning making sure that your house is not. And so <laughs> they're in charge now, so there's no difference now. It's just that you don't understand that, that they're beating you up emotionally and you have to be able to, to say that it's okay, you're still valid, and that your career choices are good because you made it deep into your life happy. And that's what I had to give myself the lecture. If I hit my bus today, I'm cool. I had a great life, it was what it was. Now I have to go forward with what it is, but I can still hold my ethics to the best degree possible. And that way your cultural desires remain and your spiritual st stability and strength continues. And then you can work out the money as you get out of the road. Also, as much as we speak against monoculture and monocropping, we also speak against 
mono income. Polyculture, poly income. It's incredibly important. They go together. Polyculture, poly income. How many different types of income possibilities do you have on your land? How many different types of poly incomes do you have in your indoor facility? That's what's really important. If cannabis is not the only thing that you're selling, then you have other opportunities that can help buy you over. We are definitely noticing that the small farmers that are making it in California in this very difficult market right now are those the ones that have, you know, multiple, multiple different incomes. So if, if they have one cannabis failure, that they still have something that's going to cushion them. So I couldn't, you know, recommend that, you know, that's just super strong, high on the top of the list. Polyculture, poly income. Yeah, and it's not really as much about strains anymore as it is about chemo bars and just understanding what cannabinoids and what kind of profiles you have because when you get out of the THC varieties and you get into the hemp varieties, you have the ability to work with international nutraceutical companies or international companies that can buy your product and hemp in this world right now is not produced organically as, as, the, as a main as a main, you know, bulk item. So if you can produce regenerative hemp in something that's higher in CBD or, I mean, uh, in obviously CBD, but higher in CBG or CBN or CBC, if you can find spikes in um, your, your chemo bars, then those are going to become extremely important for you. So I think it makes sense, number one, to have more standardized testing because testing is a really big issue. It's not the same, you know, when you go to different labs everywhere, so it's hard to really know what you have when if you get one sample to one lab, you get one meeting, you get the same sample to another lab, it's totally different. That really doesn't help you in your mission to go forward, but um, there are um, people that are working on deeper testing, and, and if we can continue to, to use our conversation to direct towards standardized testing, that's going to really, really help us. But diversifying your farm, going outside of THC and just looking into, you know, other varieties is going to be another poly important. A chemo bar is basically, it's, there's, it's, it's the chemotype in your cultivar. So a chemotype is your chemical makeup, your, your cannabinoids and your terpenes are secondary metabolites. They're another medicine outside of the, the initial plant base that you have. So a chemo bar is going to just be what it's called when you have um, unknown set of cannabinoids and terpenes. Um, also, what's popular today, you know, we really need to be able to look forward to what's going to be popular in five years from now. You know, we have talked to very large nutraceutical companies that come to us and talk to us and said, hey, you know, we would love to join in with your um, certification. We'd like to be a part of what you all are doing because we want to be able to get really beautiful, high quality, nutraceutical quality products. They actually are calling this THC market the pennies market. If we look at it as a global market, you know, you're not going to be putting THC in baby bottles. You're not going to be putting THC in dog food. All of those things are going to be enriched with CBD in the future. So as far as a secondary income, looking into CBD, looking into full spectrum chemo bars, looking into full spectrum phenotypes is really important. And and even though you know we might be pumping out four or five different types of varietals right now because that's what's popular on the market, I can't encourage you all more to have a different R&D in, in, in an area of your facility that you're doing breeding in, that you're really going for full spectrum cannabinoids, that you have something specific to your farm that's biologically intelligent to what you are doing, that already knows you really well. 
that's what we could all be working on, you know, behind closed doors. That that's like, you know, in two years from now, we'll be like, well, bam, here we go. You know, this is what I have, and this is a strain that I'm calling, you know, specific to my farm or specific to our group. That's another thing that we're talking about. We can get all of these small farmers and we can come up with this beautiful varietal and we can all share it. And rather than growing 100 pounds, we can grow 10,000 pounds if we all grow it together. And that's how we can you know, come together as a group and then we set that market. And that's important to set that market because the people in this room right now and the people up here on this stage are the ones that are going to set the market for the regenerative agriculture for, of, of cannabis. If it's regeneratively grown, then we can come together on what the price of that is. Because nobody else is really growing it. And that's what's really important. In Oregon, um, it's like 300 to $200 to $300 a pound um, for you know, high THC, bomb ass, most gnarly smelling, incredible buds grown outdoors for free, regeneratively, and they can't sell it. And, and, but high grade hemp, which can be grown by the acre, you can get up to seven, $800 a pound for the tops of a really good hemp uh, plant because it's not happening, you know, even though there's tons of people growing hemp. So that's just a little dip into the future. If everyone's growing all this weed and all this hemp, but no one's growing actually high-grade sweet hemp, and it's worth twice to three times as much as THC varieties, it doesn't take them very long to figure out what I want to do. And it's totally unregulated right now. And it's on
start looking into growing other things that actually bring in a high price point. I have a friend in Sacramento who grows peppers. He grows hot peppers. He gets $40 a pound for these peppers. Okay. I have another friend who grows Angelica. He sells the flower heads at farmer's markets for $7 a head. These things sell seed. It's kind of like wheat. It takes absolutely no care. He pulls up the roots after year two. He sells them to a small gin maker who makes an angelica-infused gin. Get outside of your head. Start thinking outside of the box and start thinking about what else you want to grow that is not being, like, if everybody's growing corn, don't grow corn. I don't care if it's glass corn or popcorn or a special yellow corn. It doesn't matter. It's freaking corn. Think of what else you can grow that's a niche market that you can get a good price point at so that when these things do start coming down the line, you have something to fall back on or a few somethings. So again, it's diversity. I mean, I do a lot of different things in my business. If you're, you know, not the consultant and maybe you're not the cultivator, or you're not the whatever the case may be, but you really love a certain flower that grows, you know, in your area and you're really good at it. Start talking to your floral markets, start talking to the places that sell hanging baskets, start talking to the restaurants that have flowers on their table, high-end restaurants. Start dialing those in right now and start getting that business up and running as well. Also, you're going to avoid 280E, which we know is going to go away at some point anyway, but you now have a business that you can have tax write-offs in. So, I have a question about, um, you guys are talking about bridles, and I know that Emerald Cup, the Type 2 Kiva Bar, kind of won an award this year, and it kind of took everyone by surprise. And, like, what do you guys think about how Type 2 Kiva Bars are going to, like, gain popularity? I think that if you... Before, you see, I think labs created, lab results created huge problems in cannabis in terms of what people perceive as quality. So everybody buys their products based off of numerics before they actually use a product. And if you do the opposite, especially if you really want to do a good sift, you sift them off of your perception. Then you run the labs and then let the labs corroborate your feelings. And you're always going to be surprised at how you're not as calibrated as you think you are. And what it does, though, is it starts to find these really interesting varieties that you might not have utilized, and you realize that they felt so good that when you smoked it that it's truly exponential weed. Now what you have to do is market it as such, and you have to realize that the new group of people coming in, I'm laughing because I'm hanging out with you guys, right? I can smoke my whole life, and I'm burning back here, and it's, it, it, it's going down in the back room. And I'm like, you guys can smoke. So the problem is, is that you're just like us and like every craft group is that we're all chimneys with good grass, but regular people can't go that deep. <laughs> what, they need, what they need is they need to have these throttle back varieties that don't throttle back the experience, but the intensity of the experience. Yeah, it has the same flavor profile. It is consistent. But the, the, the team of our type here, and especially in this case, cannabinoid ratios. They're giving you enough of a lift to where you have a, a mild sense of euphoria, and then they have enough of a balance so that you don't feel um, sensitive, you don't feel uh, tense. And so those varietals will be, to me, hugely successful to the people that are coming into cannabis because a lot of them want to be able to enjoy cannabis, and from their era, that's really what they received was a much more balanced chemotype from the outside world because it was broad populations you were consuming. So you weren't just consuming model smoke. You had a family, but in that family, many different blends within that bale. So when you had an ounce, how many plants really made up that ounce when it was ripped out of a bale? So you had a diversity that you just don't realize you had 
And because we didn't have labs to prove that, we all have these different theories on it. But now we realize that the people that are coming in are gonna want experience quality. And that's what he was saying about these beautiful hemp tops where they're throttled back on the GHC enough to where the people aren't getting blasted, but they get to enjoy some beautiful effects from the Turks and from all these other mining cannabinoids. But the people who want to still get a little more, a little more throttled up than that, to me, these, these type twos where you have a mixed variety, you have a mixed ratio, more balance, that to me is a, is a burgeoning market. And it's just that you have to be very careful because right now, the, the people who buy at the store are still numerically driven. And people say, well, I can convince them of this. And I said, well, if you go sit here and spend all day convincing each, each store that you have your product and others that, because it, it doesn't work like that. So what you have to do is you have to be able to have products that have numerics that move in the market. And then that brings attention to your brand. And then now you have attention to your brand, you can now introduce them to these varietals that you say, when your mother and father come by and they want to relive their glory days, let them smoke this. Don't smoke this one. <laughs> and now what you'll have is, a, is, a, is an educational process that will occur organically. And that's what we need to re-stratify what's available as products. Otherwise, they're forced to grow only some very specific stuff, either really truncated THC or over-exaggerated THC. It's almost like there's nothing in the middle of cannabis, and the truth is in the middle is where balance lies. Thank you. That was a really good point. And also at the Emerald Cup, the highest THC has never won the Emerald Cup. That, that's that's the case for every year. And even though there's you know seven to eight hundred flower samples on the table, you think it would be the highest THC that would really be the one that would really catch your attention because you just smoked seven hundred joints before it. Um, but the reality is, uh, you know, Dr. Ethan Russo has told us about the entourage effect, and it's it's the entourage of the whole entire picture that really gives you the sensation that you're looking for. And um, high CBG, if you have a higher CBG and your and your um and your counts, then you're gonna it's gonna be it's the precursor to the other cannabinoids. It's gonna make those um, more powerful. So really, it's understanding each cannabinoid and how it works together with each other, which is a it's, it's an emerging. Um, awareness. I, we, we, we don't know that yet, it's especially because there's over a hundred cannabinoids in the plant. We're only like super into like eight of them. You know what I mean? So I think that there's a, it's also a chemical makeup within our body, you know, which, and I think that that was a mistake to the type uh, two winning uh, because I think that was, it got mixed in. If that wasn't last year, it was the year before. So. Yeah. yeah, sorry. I, it's just something I heard. It was awesome. No, it was, it happened. Oh, it yeah, yeah, it was basically, it shouldn't have got there, but it did, and it was like, how you doing? Thank you. I wanted to also add, does everyone know what the highest selling edible is in Colorado, or has been, just since legalization? Mushrooms. The rookie cookie. The rookie cookie. It's a five milligram edible for people that have not smoked in 30 years. It's the single highest selling edible product in the whole market. At the same time, the most stone I got probably in the last year was an Emerald Cup and their tent off of one of their strains that I think was 14 or 16 percent, but in a terpene profile that would kick you in the ass. But, it, but it's that combination of the terpenes and cannabinoids. I know you have a true terpene shirt on, and I know there's some controversy with them right now, but um, if you look at, I'm not going to get into that, but, um, but, but um, if you look at, they've got a lot of publishing on on this terpene and this with this cannabinoid and this with these combos. And, and that's something that there's very little research on. There's a lot of people, I know Kevin's work with a lot of people that have done much more in-depth work than, than they have. 
and, and, and in terms of lab research, but each of these terpenes have their own medical benefits. And when you combine them, you know, combining myrcene and, and THC might be um, sedative, I don't know, it's probably wrong, but um, sedative, but you combine that with like myrcene, um, THC, and pinene, maybe now it's a, it's a, you know, like drinking three espressos. You know, just the additive of one terpene can have that radical of an effect going from being a sedative to a stimulant. And that's, we don't even understand a tenth of the, what's going on in those, or even what the combos do. And that's kind of the, you know, $600 billion question of the industry is what does what and what treats what? And what combination was what? And what I wanted, one other common thing I wanted to bring up on this, because you guys have all worked hard on cultivars, and I brought this up to everyone, is what do you guys think of like these guys that are trying to do um, algae or yeast-based stuff with CBG, and they're trying to replicate people's hard work with these breeders that have spent decades breeding stuff out, and these guys think they're entitled to come in and copy our shit. <laughs> well, I think that the plant will have the last laugh. And I think that we are dealing with an adaptogen, and that's exactly what she's gonna do, is adapt. And um, she can't be controlled by corn, soybeans, canola, all of those uh, you know, plants that are really important you know, in, in the plant world, they're not master plants. Cannabis is a master plant, it's an important plant. The reason why it's called a master plant is not only because it has really high nutritive values, and also that it has the ability to be psychoactive in ourselves, but also is a plant that teaches other plants. And I think that that's really important. Like how is it that this plant is going to lead the way for different ideologies and the way that we grow other plants? And I think that she's doing just that. And these conversations, they may sound really small and they're in, you know, in, in small farms and that, but we are creating a new conversation because this plant has given us the ability to create this new conversation. By ingesting this plant, it gives us a different type of intelligence. Everybody sitting in this room is medicine makers. We're doing this for a reason because we have an incredible love for this plant. Let's let the plant lead the way and the plant is gonna be the one that decides. And I don't think that she's gonna be so easily controlled in a yeast culture. I don't think that you're gonna be able to do all of these different isolates. We already know that you know big pharma can't get its hands on, on cannabis. When the nutraceutical market is gonna to totally thrive, a pharmaceutical market, you, you just, you can't take something and isolate it and then expect for it to have the same type of values and the same type of um, feelings. And that's why I think that allow the plant to determine you know, where, we, where we go in the future. And I don't think that um, you know, these type of isolates are gonna help us. And uh, uh, thank you all so much. This is such a thought-provoking panel. Um, and it might be too much to say that I wish John Kemp was on this panel with you guys, because this would just be even more of a diverse conversation. And this is, yeah, so beautiful. But uh, on to maybe end on a positive note, what are you guys really excited about? Like, I remember reading years ago, Paul Stamets had some, uh, you know, fungal metabolite extract patented that was going to put Monsanto down and bugs couldn't see plants because it messed up the infrared and, you know, are there things like this that are happening within like the CRISPR or genetic editing and in this realm that's like hopeful? Like, can we use machine learning for any of this stuff? Like, how do, this is going to bowl us over, right, if we don't embrace it to some degree and maybe I hope that the machines can't replicate life and that variation, but is there any kind of that hope that you're seeing down, you know, in talking to people around the world that you all are, I mean, 
Where is, where is there light in a lot of this besides just no till regenerative on site, the mundane that we're all doing? Where is that like, you know, the sparks occurring that you're seeing? Thank you. Well, I think that, um, you know, we don't talk about CRISPR. But just um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, machines are a part of our, our modernization. It's a part of our modern world. And, you know, we don't live 100% in, in the wilderness. So we have to embrace it as part of our realm. So I think, you know, we could be saying we live in the best time, you know, ever because we have the ability to analyze everything. It's just don't get caught in only analyzing it. You still have to bring in the spiritual and the feeling and, and have those things be a part of the conversation. Um, what is exciting about what's happening right now um, from our point of view is uh, most of the strains that you that you come across, even though they smell and look really you know differently, are really high in THC and high in mercy. So those are the, the two things that you really find. So if you can get um, into strains that maybe have no mercy in it and uh, you know really high limonene and really high pinene and, and beta osamine and different things, I mean those are what we're what we're gearing that's what we're looking for at the moment and um you know feminization is is a big thing that's used in cbd is is hemp is the big the big thing to be excited about right at the moment i mean because there's so much potential with it you can you can make you can grow a plant right now and, and create a product that you can sell in other countries right now as it as it is and we're doing that um, and that, that to me is really exciting. Um, and being able to, uh, you know, generate different products without it is, is what we're really looking at right now. So product orientation, compounding, using Chinese herbs, using that, that, you know, medicinal mushrooms is something we've always done and bringing together, you know, herbalism. And, and you know, can, we have an ability now to take cannabis into herbalism. It's not just the, the black sheep herb that's off to the side that, you know, it's just kind of like that you laugh about it a little bit and, you know, it's, it's, it's something that we can bring in. So I think we need to embrace traditional cultures, Ayurvedic medicine and Chinese medicine and bring cannabis into that. And then also cannabis is now bridging into big agriculture. And I think that's an opportunity. I think some of the work that, that uh, Suzanne's doing with you know and, you know bringing down big ag use of chemicals is commendable and I, th I thank you for that and that's a really big thing so herb is now moving into the pharmaceutical and into the big ag that realm so it's almost like we it could potentially take the consciousness that it has within that realm and make a big difference on the land so I would like to see you know regenerative agriculture is a really key part of what's exciting right now because it has the opportunity to bioremediate the land, bioremediate the humans, and we're in a, you know, an all-time need for that. As, as smart as we are with the machines, the machines got us into this problem. So I, I think that Kelly and I are really interested in the machines and we'll play, you know, they can be around the sandbox and all that and stuff, but we really wanna learn the biology, you know, the biology and, and the, natural, the natural cycles are what we're really losing, we've lost our our ability to have intuition and stuff because the machines have taken us away from that. So we're really excited that there is a, a format where we can use herbalism and use this consciousness in our, in our growing. And um, so moving beyond the, the modern cultivar where it is, where we bred out all the other um, strains is really important to 
nature. So even though it's kind of tricky growing land race strains, um, we create a space on our land to do that because it gives us realms. And you know, you'll, you'll see a flower that a friend would come over that's like a, a bro and talking about mints and stuff, and they would see her land race flower and they wouldn't know what to think about it. You know, it'd be like a, that, that's not a flower type thing or whatever. But when you start washing it or you start making it into edibles and you start doing things. All of a sudden, it's like, oh shit, that's that's all I want. So I think that it's uh, really important for us to see that the nicest flower in the room, at, you know, that you smell and look at, is a really cool thing. But there is more to cannabis than that. So I mean, that's just my thought for the moment. You forgot about water. Bioremediated water. The cannabis plant, if it was planted along every highway, do you know how quickly it would start cleaning? water systems as a bioaccumulator. <clears throat> it is a leading plant. Um, on the philosophy side, I think uh, Elon Musk said it best on Joe uh, Joe Rogan. Uh, Rogan. Um, AI. Scares the shit out of me. But it's loose. It's going to get loose. Plastics, they're loose. They're, they're out of our control. There's no way you're stopping it at this point. So how do I embrace it? How do I deal with it? I think the biology um, excites me because as we learn more and more about what it does, there's some new studies on uh, plastic consuming biology on the giant islands out in the Pacific. Biosphere tried an experiment in their sea fail miserably. But what's going on out in the ocean is pretty intense. And so I think that in my mind, the future lies in our understanding of biology and our learning of all of these different species and their relationships and their interactions. That's going to be some amazing stuff. That could be the thing to turn things around and remediate the soil. That and the fact that this plant is now really, literally, a springboard for this conversation of what plants can do, what biology can do, and how it could take us forward. So to me, that's the most exciting next step. And how about you, Susan? So that article you're talking about with the fungi, that is going, the fungus that's going to put Monsanto in business, it gets emailed to me about once a month. And just so you know, we've been using fungi myself over 20 years to manage insects, and we use it in big ag. So Monsanto's not going out of business? Well, Monsanto <laughs> technically doesn't exist anymore. They, yeah, they, they buried the name. And this is what, so it, this is a good social experiment, because if you say, name a horrible company, it's either going to be Comcast Cable or Monsanto. But Monsanto, I mean, all the big agrochemical companies each have things they've done which have not been very environmentally friendly. So, I mean, they're all equally guilty, but it's funny how branding Monsanto, and that's why they decided, you know what, because I don't know if you caught the blip, for about one year there was Monsanto Organics, and I about laughed and I cried when I saw that at a trade show. I'm like, that's never going to fly, and sure enough, it went away. Um, the, the thing I struggle with, because you talk about diversifying, I work with lettuce people, I work with poinsettia growers, I work with 
cannabis and for moms, I'm all over, you know, anything interesting, um, is the changes I have seen, because I've been in the industry 28 years now, how much I have seen change. And I had to make a decision very early on um, because I was in high school, I was trying to save what's left, and we did all the protesting and this and that, and I had to decide do I want to be a part of the problem or part of the solution? And I really want to be part of the solution, and I saw that working with large-scale production, I could have a bigger impact for reducing the pesticide usage than working with people like you that have already gotten the memo on it. And it has, I, I, I have been yelled at at trade shows by chemical companies till I literally cried, but I had to pull myself up and get back out there because they saw me as the enemy. Flip forward to now, these, I'm gonna say it, they're kissing my ass right now because they realize that traditional synthetic pesticides, even though in some situations we still can't get away from them yet, but the market is moving to more microbial stuff. It's moving to the fungi fund management. I'm getting ready to attend a week-long course on just endopathogenic fungi so we can learn more how to use them, fungus and bacteria that kill insects so we can harvest what's already here to use. And, and I work with some of the biggest floriculture greenhouses in the country. They do not market, they do not advertise how they're not, they're not using neonics anymore, and there's no law that says they have to stop. The laws have not changed, but they have changed their growing methods drastically. They're using the microbial fungus, using lots of trichoderma, Bavaria bassiana. We release predatory mites every week. We're putting out fungi, but they're still viewed as the bad guys, but they don't market the change. And I think this is something I've been on them and doing, but they're scared of the perception from the public that if you don't grow with pesticides, your plants will have bugs. And so it's, it's I, I, we're getting closer. To, to letting people know what we're doing. But it's really pretty eye-opening when I do presentations on how we've walked these growers that were spraying orthene and Durasban and, you know, you know all the Dicistone, all this nasty stuff 25 years ago to now they're just not using those chemistries. So, I mean, it's really, there have been incredible strides. And if we keep moving at the pace we're moving, we are going to see drastic changes, but it has to be through education and the people that have the history of doing this stuff have to be willing to say, well, yeah, they were bad in the past, but we have to work with them to help them move forward. And so you got to be able to cross that line. And But I think some people, you know, it's too hard of a line to get past in some situations. So I actually see us as not moving machine forward with pest management. We're actually going back to the technologies that were developed. I mean, we're using eventual nematodes have been around forever, and they disappeared with synthetic chemistries. Um, but now we're back to it. We're back to more microbials on uh, insect management. So, but it takes a lot of education on how to use them, and as you'll learn tomorrow, identify, identify, identify what your problem is, because you've got to target them very specifically. The broad spectrum pesticides are going away. That, that being said, with the example you've given, have you guys observed um, that the farmers have really been able to effectively lead the market or regulation in like good change with 
better regulation, like you said, that they did that? On they're not, they're regulations. Or is it just that they've done that themselves? They've done it themselves. They're the number one suit? driver has a, has a law. Up, up to five years ago, nobody ever came to me and said, I care about drinking water. I care about employee safety. I want to reduce my pesticides. It's, we spray everything and we can't kill it. And it's because they've gotten back into a corner of resistance. Uh, same thing with antibiotics. And I got these t-shirts that say you can't build resistance to being eaten. Because the biocontrol agents physically are often killing it by stabbing them, sucking their guts out. Again, you'll see all this tomorrow. Um, and, and evolutionary, maybe they can evolve defenses, but it's not going to happen in our lifetime. So the market is being driven by need to manage pests because the pests are build, building resistance to chemistries. But it, it may even happen, a lot of the OMRI-listed products, uh, the pyrethrins that everybody's using, absolutely can build resistance. I'm worried about how much sulfur is being used in this industry. It's hardly used in ornamentals anymore at all. We just don't use it. And I, I, it's, it's, it's kind of keeping the sulfur market alive right now in the cannabis industry. And we have to worry about resistance because people don't understand rotations. They don't understand modes of actions and all that kind of stuff. So. He asked me about biologicals with honeybees. Yeah, well, no. So let me, because that's not a part. Since I was here a couple weeks ago and did a lot of stuff right I'm doing completely different from when I was here before, and that's not part of what I'm doing tomorrow. Tomorrow's more about scouting, finding, and releasing. Um, so um, on the honeybee issues. Now, just like with anything, when things are really out of whack, you can have impacts on honeybees. And the microbials, if they're sprayed in very high numbers, it's not natural, and there can be some concerns. But the other option is at this point in what we know, it's way better than going in and using some of the pesticides which we know will have slow dose, slow lethal impacts and all that. It's stepping stones. You know, it's people want to do a 180 overnight and I'm just happy we've turned 25 degrees right now and it's going to keep turning. And we, you know, the people want to like pigeonhole the bee decline and say, just like autism, oh, it's vaccines, or oh, it's the pesticides. The bee decline is a giant pie, and a slice is pesticides, a slice is we bred the bees to be docile, a slice is varilla mites, a one of the big slices is nutrition for bees because the flowers that everybody wants, their big hanging baskets, and all, you know, the calvicoas and all this stuff, which are beautiful, it's basically like, they're, they're not pollinator foods. And it's, it's you, we need to have the right flowers, but we humans have selected for hundreds of years, here's what we want. We want flowers. Even the heirloom varieties have been human selected for things we want. And so this is what the beet researchers have to really figure out is really what are the right flowers. And like the honeybees, I'm sure most of you know, they're not native to, this, they're not native to North America not supposed to be here anyhow, so how do you have native plants for them? So it's it's a very complex system, but with the predatory mites, I will tell you, there's some really awesome research going on where they're actually taking some of the predatory mites, Cucamaris, uh, Swirsky, and Hypoaspis miles, also now known <coughs> as Australia lilacs, 
and they actually have them walk through the Bavaria Chlamydia, and they pick it up on their bodies, and then they put it in these little vials, and then they hang them on the plants, and as the mites disperse, they naturally, the spores fall off, or they pick them off, and they're able to deliver them to parts of plants where things like the flower trips are. So they're actually applying the microbials to where they are. And some of this initial research that was presented in Vancouver last year um, showed that they actually can get better control of like Western flower species using this application method over spraying. So there's some real, real interesting stuff coming down the line that you kind of have to dig for, and that's what my job is, is to go to the nerd test and get this information and then see how can we apply it in real world production. Because at the end of the day, everybody's got to make payroll. And so I can't bring unreasonable financial options to my customers. I have to help them stay in business too. So we have to have stuff that works and is economical. And yes, every once in a while, I do have to recommend a pesticide, but the other option is the grower goes out of business and then they're out, everybody's out of their jobs. But eventually, we're getting more products. And a bear, BASF, all the, the big companies that everybody does not, you know, generally have warm feelings for that are on the organic side. They're the ones coming with all the microbial products now, and they've got the millions to help research a lot of stuff. And it's a stepping stone. It's not, a, this problem's not gonna be fixed overnight. We need better research, more education, and you know there is this tremendous change now to the small localized farm, which is awesome to see, but it's, it's, we gotta keep going that direction. So it's, it's like turning the Titanic. So, you know, hopefully we'll see some significant <coughs> strides in the change in ag practices in our lifetime, which again, it's come way farther than I ever thought in my life. I re I'm really surprised at where we're at and how much change has occurred already. So. Are you seeing um, enthusiastic things from Bayer or these others, or is it more begrudging? No, like no, the they, they're pretty excited. Um, they are struggling with an identity crisis, though, because they have always been, you know, an agrochemical company, and they're, they are, they don't, they don't understand how to market to people with these kinds of products, and, and there are some situations where they don't even really fully understand how to use the products yet, um, but, again, they, they can help you know, get these products and get the research paid for. Because the reality is, is the small, like the insect producers, the biocontrol companies, they're not big enough to afford funding on the university level. And the days in the United States of research for research sakes don't exist. Research has to be paid for. And, you know, a lot of my growers would much rather have a microbial option, but they also have to, again, stay in business. So, um, no, I think they, they're actually, excited about it they just have to understand how to use them because it's very very different and again a lot of these products are much more specifically targeted so you have to be a much more it's hard to be a grower today than it was you know you know i think you know 80 years uh, 1980 because again you can put six chemistries in a tank slam the lid go out and fog it through your field and it all worked the chemistries are failing because of resistance issues and you've got to be smarter. And with all the MRLs, the maximum residue level testing that's starting to happen on um, 
on produce, and even tropical ornamentals are being tested for pesticide levels now. Um, there's a lot more going on than I think a lot of the world hears about. had something to say about the use of pesticides and fungicides and um, there's a great quote by Albert Einstein that says when you feel like you've run out of options you foster creativity. I think it's something that we can all think about. The, the original question was what's something that's happening that makes me feel happy?
be aware of the differences that you experience with cannabis and or when you mentioned like smoking the 700 joints I try to think of it as someone with not nearly the very good palate <laughs> or experienced palate like what are you looking for that would stand out amongst all the things that you've had because I feel like there's an essence there that we can help educate our community that's coming in that's maybe looking for those more balanced ratios. Because um, I think that's a huge education piece that this plant has all taught us to have an awareness that maybe our other brothers and sisters don't know that they have access to themselves. And one thing I worry about with the kind of educational approach is that people are being told what they should experience and we're not giving them the keys to unlock their own experience of seeing these different varieties and being on board with having these different areas have a, a special thing to offer. You, you, if you have the knowledge of cannabis in general where you're the one who's been dealing with the then you can make some generalizations that hold pretty true. And those generalizations allow you to take an individual and say, what we normally see is a very aggressive high from fuel-based varietals. Earth-based varietals seem to be relaxing, kind of stimulatory, and things we would call floral would be introspective. And we can, we can say that kind of fits with all the categories of cannabis. And what that does is it allows people to be able to have some sense of direction and then you're allowing them now to be able to use your experience of what you seem to find holds true over time. And that allows you then to be able to steer people into a decision-making ability that if they say, I don't want to be edgy, well then you don't take them into the fuel direction. You bring them into earths. And if they want to be able to have some body effect with enough mental acuity to still code, you put them into florals. And if they, they're a, I think they get up and be perky in the morning, then you hit them with fruits. And we pretty much know it holds true. You can see these patterns of consumption. If you take this with this data and you lay it out and lay all varietals across some of these relationships that are turkey based, you can see this incredible truth on how the human perceives cannabis. So we, we know that once we look at this, we can then even examine it deeper and say that brainwave proof states that if we utilize this type of cannabis and this type of cannabis and the turkey relationship are clearly separated, you can see the movement of the brain waves on these graphs. So it says that it's not just antidotal or placebo, but it's actually this does this and this does that. That makes it easy now for the individual to find what they like, and they can just say, hey, when I come to the store, what I want is I want I want Michigan-based cannabis, but I want it in a, a, a earth and some fruit. I want some of the dirty cherries. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that now you're making it really simple. The problem with science is that most people don't really want to spend every waking moment of the day studying this. What they want to be able to know is what's good, what works. I need, I need six minutes in here and I gotta go. I'm not here to spend 43 hours studying meat cakes. I asked the butcher, what would work for a stew? And they go, these right here work pretty good from our experience. Now you go try them and then you'll know what works best for you, but we can say we would put that in a stew pot. And we have that ability right now, and I think that's the education, is to make it as simple as possible that when you overcomplicate this stuff, you lose people quickly. And what you do is you catch them on the beauty of the simplicity, and then they can on their own go dive into it and become really caught up in little details. 
sure it's what matters to the customer. And you try to make it very simple and not dumb it down, but not overly complicated. So, I mean, that's my approach to it. it it's always been pretty functional. Um, also, this is what I was talking about earlier, that cannabis is a master plant. So I think all of us as you know, medicine makers, this is the, the ultimate ability that cannabis now is pointing us towards different questions. It's giving us like, well, why not study 5,000 years of Ayurvedic? They've done phenology for, since the beginning of time. They've already talked about mercy and lemony and osteen, beta, beta periophylline. They've already been doing it forever. So go down those long roads. This is, this is where cannabis is gonna make those bridges to, to other plants. They're not necessarily talking about the names of the phenotypes and, and what they're called, but they're saying, oh, well, you know, this is what lemongrass does for you, and we know that that's mercy. This is what mango does for you, we know that that's mercy. So we can take all of these lessons that cannabis has in front of us, all these